Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you listening online, good morning to you also. And before I ask you to stand to read from the scriptures, um, I want to make just a couple of comments. First, a quartet of hymns this morning. You younger Christians would do yourself a great favor if you were to look up some of these um, hymns and familiarize yourself with the words, such as uh, cherish. What a powerful word for love. I can say I love vanilla shakes, but if I said I cherish them, something would be wrong. What kind of weirdo? I mean, so it is a powerful word. Uh, Lay my trophies down. My trophies, those things that I feel are so special that I have achieved. Well, the day is going to come when they won't matter. What will matter is Christ. And those hymns are so rich with doctrine. Good, uh, just uh, don't, don't let the type of music dictate to you what is good to worship with and what is not. So much of what is called Christian music is not. Um, some of it is, I'm, I'm sure. So I hear. Uh, anyway, that's one thing. The other is, what a honor and a blessing from God to know that I step into the pulpit on Sundays and Wednesdays and speak mostly to people who are hungry and thirsty for the Word of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, what a blessing that you can endure the Word, that you can sit under the Word and not expect to be entertained. Uh, that you're not uh, looking to be fed milk, but you want the meat of the word, and you have every intention of going out into the world and being used by Christ. Uh, what a blessing. I take full credit for this. Uh, of course, I, none. Anyway, I just wanted to say those two things. Uh, one more thing. You younger Christians... If you are getting bored, older Christians too, as we go verse by verse through the Bible, what you may find helpful if you, before you come to church, read the passages we're going to be in. You, you, you go online, you can see we're going to be in Acts, we're going to be in Kings, and just read that section so you're not you know, outside the fence when we start opening these things up. Well, with that, this morning's message is entitled, Attacking the Gates. And our text will be Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36, verses 22 through 36. We will be able to read this in under two and a half minutes. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 2, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Church after the Ascension of Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw Yahweh always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, 
My heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, of, says himself, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Please be seated. Would be nice to go to verse 37 too, but we cannot. Because that's going to tell us what the result of this sermon is. Attacking the gates. By phenomena, the church was inserted into the world. And by phenomena... The church will be removed from this world, as we know as the rapture. The church is the assembly of believers, of true believers. The apostate church will be left behind, and the apostates along with them. But the true believers will be taken away. Now, the apostles at this point, when the Holy Spirit made this dramatic entrance, and they began to speak in tongues and were understood in other languages, which clearly is a miracle, they were falsely accused of being drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Peter then, of course, refutes that and launches into a counterattack, because it was an attack. It was Satan influencing some in the audience to say, this is not, this has nothing to do with God. This is, has everything to do against God. These men are on the temple ground. It's likely where this is taking place. And they're not even sober. And Peter, Peter was not going to stand for that. He does stand. But he stands to launch this attack using reason, truth, and scripture. Well, lessons fly off the page for us as Christians. That's what I want to use when I'm sharing the faith. When I am defending the faith by attacking the fortifications of the enemy. It was to Peter that Jesus said, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Well, Peter is carrying that out right now. He is attacking the gates of hell. And Jesus spoke of hell's gates metaphorically to get us to understand spiritual fact that hell has fortifications that hell makes war plans, that hell will execute those war plans, and that we better be ready, and that we should prevail, and that if we're going to prevail, we have to attack. Now, if you look at it 
culturally, the gates of the city was where the rulers were, where the war council and war plan uh, took place, where they were put in place. But to us, we think of the gates of this barrier, this fortification. And as we listen to Jesus say, the gates of hell shall not prevail, taking both meanings, that puts us on offense. Because the enemy doesn't attack carrying gates to us. We have to go to the gates if we're going to prevail. We have to beat their plan on the battlefield and continue to attack until their position is overrun by us. When the church has done this for centuries, or else we wouldn't be here. Now, we do this through truth and love and scripture. City gates, the place where war plans were made. Satan's war plans, according to the metaphor of Christ. Jesus promised their collapse. If the righteous attack, if the righteous do what Peter is doing here, they started this, Peter is going to finish this. It is the church militant, the church on the move, ever intolerant of Satan's influence, of Satan's work. Richard Wombrand, in Tortured for Christ, he's now with the Lord, and if you haven't read his book, Tortured for Christ, I encourage you to get it and read it. He writes, wars are won only by offense, never by defense strategy. That's true throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, Paul and the apostles got out of Jerusalem. And they went out into the Gentile world. And they took the gospel with them. They went on the attack, attacking the gates. Our attacks on Satan's influence must be directed by the Holy Spirit. He is our field marshal. He points to which direction we go, when we go, and it is our responsibility to be ready. What good is having a field marshal if the troops have no ammunition, if the troops have no courage, if the troops have no faith? We have our responsibility. God will for certainly fulfill his if he can. He cannot do it if we're not ready to go. We're, what we're going to see in this section of Scripture is Peter hurling scripture verses at his audience because he was ready. He was armed. He did not know this was going to happen. He went up to, uh, with the apostles to meet, and praise the, uh, meet together and praise the Lord, and then he finds himself face-to-face with scoffers and hungry souls. And he goes right to work. You've got to love this kind of stuff if you are a believer. If you're not born again... And filled with the Holy Spirit, you may have a nonchalant response to these things, a reaction. But if you're filled with the Spirit, you've got, I, I want a piece of this. I want God to use it. We were just singing, pass me not, O gentle Savior, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Before, before uh, God blessed me with a church to pastor, he called me to ministry. And then he let me sit for, for over a decade. And it was very painful. Because I would see others unwrapping their gifts. I would see others who were called and were not passed by. And I felt passed by from time to time. And all I did was study. Just load up. 
I take my books in my car and drive to the work site, get there two hours early and study the word of God. Confident that he was going to one day use me. Those are painful days. Let's stop talking about it. So anyway, uh, this is uh, Peter. And this is a lesson for us all. In verse 22, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. The church at this time will remain predominantly Jewish for almost 30 years. And uh, the Gentiles will pour in. But it was, again, a very difficult thing uh, to to take place, to, to come with this New Testament that God had spoken of. Born again Christians. Born again Christians love Israel. I, I think, uh, you know, if you say you're a Christian and you don't have a heart for Israel, even for the Jewish people, uh, so you need a reality check from the Word. Something's missing, something's not right. You're not falling under a proper influence. Psalm 130, verse 8, and there are other places in the Scripture, but this is the sentiment that. God wants to communicate to his people. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God has not given up on Israel. He's not replaced them. He certainly has raised up the church. But the church is made of those who are no longer Jew and no longer Gentile. They're people of God. And when the church is confused about this, she is confused. And whenever we are confused, we are weaker than what we could have been had we not been confused. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man tested by God to you, by fact, by prophet, and by God. That's how Jesus has been attested. The fact is, his audience understood who Christ was. They knew the story. They just couldn't put it together yet. And Peter's going to get them to do, many of them to do just that. But the prophets spoke of these things from which Peter will draw. And God is the one that is... Overseeing it all through his Holy Spirit to eliminate the supernatural from Christianity is to have nothing left that is vital. I put it this way, without the Holy Spirit, the power of God, we have nothing. We don't have to see the dead raised. We don't have to see the lepers cleansed to realize there's still the miracle of preaching the gospel and converted souls. To convert a soul is a miracle. You can't do it and I can't do it. No human being can convert a soul to Jesus Christ. However, almost exclusively, God uses human beings so that he can convert them. And this is uh, the gospel message. This is why we, we have something to do when we come to Christ other than wait to go to heaven. We are to take the gates. We are to go on the offensive. We are to attack. We are to be ready to attack. This doesn't make us rude, uh, forcing our opinions on others, because we wait for the Holy Spirit to open the door. And then we enter into dialogue, as Peter is doing here. He's not running around the temple ground with a sandwich board, you know, repent, the end is near. He says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. By miracles, wonders, and signs, 
Now, we are in the age of grace, not the law, the law of Moses. John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the last prophet of the law. We're in the age of faith, according to the truth of the word, not the age of miracles. We're not running around waiting for some Elijah to come up and do miracles so that we can believe. Miracles. That is power in action. Now, Satan is capable of doing miraculous things, too, and granted by God. The story of Job teaches that. Antichrist will come with lying wonders, signs and lying wonders. Lying in the sense that they're going to mislead people, those who want to be misled. Because the deciding factor with Antichrist is he's going to be unrighteous. He's not going to be a decent person. So anything he does is disqualified. But those who will fawn over him, uh, that won't matter. Indecency won't matter. Sodom and Gomorrah should have been preserved, according to their, the mindset of those who will be around Antichrist and many today. The signs. Uh, first, the miracles. That is the power in action. And the wonders. The wonders are the effects of the miracle. They're experiencing that here in Acts chapter 2. With a mighty rushing wind. With the, with the tongues, they were experiencing something that was not normal. There was spiritual, this spiritual activity taking place. And Peter will let them know that spiritual activity is from heaven, not from hell. The signs here are the value of the miracle. The effect is the wonder. The sign is supposed to create a response. That's, this is, this is uh, not to be wasted. It's meaningful. It's connected. It's connected to God's word, not outside of God's word. Miracles today, they are still granted. They're just not as widespread or dramatic as in biblical times, at much of biblical times, because there are periods in the Bible where miracles were not uh, pronounced either. But miracles tend to breed a craving for more miracles. Okay, you've seen a miracle, now you want another one. And God will not be reduced to that, and he gives us a special beatitude on this very subject. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's the age of faith. It's disappointing when people try to tell you that you're going to be healed when you're not going to be healed. When, it's, when, you know, you're not going to suffer this or that, and you are going to suffer this or that. It's, uh, it's, it's not what we're supposed to do. We don't know the mind of God. It would be quite presumptuous on many things to just uh, insert into somebody's life what God is going to do for them. What happens when he doesn't? I've seen this so many times. We are here to subject ourselves to the will of God because we cherish him. And we cherish him because we know who he is. We know what he is about. We know where he's taking us and we know where we are going. And we are not apologizing to anybody for this and we're not backing away from it either. Apostates, they will come. That's them. That is them. That is not me. And you've got to have that foundation in your heart. Uh, are you two going to leave? Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Well, Coming back to this, and I'll quote that again from Peter. 
here in verse, we've only got the first verse so far. You guys got to hurry up. Verse 22 is where we are. He says, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Well, Jesus was well known to this crowd. because John chapter 12, verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Yeah, those miracles in Galilee and Syria and Jerusalem and Judea, they were just a word was spreading all over the place about Jesus. Peter knew that they knew. And he was going to take advantage of that to their um, edification. They knew the character of Christ. Even if they never saw him, they heard. They knew about the sermons and the miracles and the murder. They heard of his resurrection also. And Peter is about to bring to them, right up close, these facts. He's going to back them up from the Bible, and they're going to be converted. The signs were evidences made necessary in order to grab their attention. The sign of the coming of the Holy Spirit. But those signs never produced conviction. They stayed lost. They had the signs. They saw the miracle. But they still were lost. This was the case in the days of Christ. It was the case in the days of Paul. It is the same way to this day. Miracles are not enough to convert a soul. Just ask Judas Iscariot. But you can't ask him. Because he became an apostate. Peter's preaching, his witnessing of the truth, with reason... Produce conviction. Look with me at verses 36 and 37. Therefore, uh, let's do 37. We did 36. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How do we fix this? You've convinced us that we are guilty and that's conviction. Felons are convicted when found guilty. Verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. What is boring about this kind of preaching? Peter, do you know that Stephen's going to do the same thing and they're going to kill him for doing this? Peter points out, here what he says in verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He's pointing to the mystery of sovereignty and free will in human choice. <clears throat> oh, look. If you preach here, you can bring water in here. If you don't preach here, you can't bring water in here. Just so we make sure nobody's confused about that. That's just a Marine Corps talking through me. Anyway, uh, by God's decided will, him being delivered by the determined purpose, God decided how he was going to deal with our sin. Jesus became the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, according to other passages then, Revelation 13.8, which says it just like that. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God the Father delivered Jesus Christ to the cross that we could be delivered 
from the judgment upon ourselves because of our sin. Now, this crucifying of Jesus did not absolve those responsible for their ghastly crucifixion simply because God had purposed to deliver humanity by delivering Christ to the cross. The Lord used what he had, and what he had were guilty people who were, many of them opted to remain guilty. In Luke's gospel, Jesus, speaking to the naysaying religious leaders, essentially said to them, you got plenty of religion, you have plenty of culture, but you're going to hell anyway because you don't want to believe the truth. Luke 13, 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out because you'll have no one else to blame. And the fact that they will be gnashing their teeth indicates they will be angry at God for having the audacity to be God and to judge them for their wickedness, even though God had offered them salvation. Jesus, forsaken by his Father for not abandoning us to sin, taking our sin upon himself according to his Father's will, according to the will of Christ. Every time you see the cross of Christ, remember it was no accident. Whether you see it on a piece of jewelry, whether you see it on a roadside altar, whether you see it in the church, on a church, wherever you see the cross of Christ, it was not a mistake. It was planned by God. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. And that has happened. It's done. Not when Isaiah... When Isaiah wrote those words, it was still over 700 years away. Even in the millennial age, according to Ezekiel, what Christ achieved for us on the cross will be commemorated with bloodless sacrifices. They will act out the crucifixion because there will be people born in that age that really don't understand it. And uh, they're going to get a lot of help with that, and some will still reject in the end. The foreknowledge of God. First of all, all knowledge with God is foreknowledge. It is almost a redundancy. God knows everything. He cannot learn. Uh, this uh, foreknowledge of God, A.W. Tozer really just lays this out so wonderfully. He says, before man sinned, the remedy had already been provided. Before paradise was lost, paradise had already been regained. Because Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world, and in the mind and purpose of God, Christ had already died before he was born. In the purpose of God, Christ had already died before Adam was created. In the purpose and plan of God, the world had already been redeemed before the world had ever bought, uh, pardon me, was ever bought, brought into being. Boy, I messed that last. I was going pretty good there. Anyway, I'll read that last part. In the purpose and plan of God, the world had already been redeemed before the world was ever bought into being. Brought, not bought. 
Where, is, where did Jesus die? In the will of his Father. Where did he rise to? The throne beside his Father. These things were predestined. They did not evolve in the mind of God. They did not develop. Christ did not come here and sort of just uh, stumble into these things. The choreograph was by God in the Godhead. You have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. Taken, tortured, and terminated. That's what he just said they did to Jesus Christ. And they had no right to do it. There were others who were blasphemers. And they had a right to do it. But Christ was no blasphemer. Peter here charges the crowd, the multitude, with murder. They are on defense at this point. Peter is on offense. As long as he is preaching this sermon, they've got their backs up against the ropes, uh, so to speak. Being instruments through which the will of God was accomplished did not, again, relieve them of their guilt. Those who applauded the death of Christ, those who dismissed it and ignored it, knowing his miracles and his life and all these other things that belong to the ministry of Jesus Christ, they were guilty. Sovereignty and free will in action. No one forced them to side against Christ. And God God uses people Nonetheless, whether you are for him or against him. Now, he mentions here lawless hands. That has a dual application. The Gentiles who crucified Christ, they were lawless. They were not under the law of Moses. And then the Jewish uh, intelligentsia who arrested him and brought him to the Gentiles, they were guilty too. So if you said, I don't know why it's even a debate in some circles, Who is responsible for the death of sinners, of the death of Christ? That's an easy question. Me. Sinners are responsible for the death of Christ. And it is the love of God that decided to do something about it before the foundations of the world were made. Verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Well, God is stronger than death. Death is painful, even if not for the individual who dies, for those left behind. Death is an opponent of love. Death hurts. Death is always wrong, even when you kill a mosquito, because it's a demonstration of the curse. Things die now. Without the curse, I mean, I don't know, there wouldn't be any mosquitoes. I don't know, I wasn't there, but I know there wouldn't be a problem And I wouldn't have to kill them. Now it's kill or be bitten. (laughs) It was not possible that he should be held by it. Well, God is invincible. And Jesus, being sinless, had no wage to pay. Was going to be the recipient of no judgment. Death could not defeat him. That's why on the cross he gives up his spirit. He was in total control. He was sinless. And to be sinless is to be outside of the curse of sin, which is death. Mary died because she was not sinless, just like the rest of us. And that is not an insult. If she were listening to the sermon now, she'd be applauding. 
at the end of the service, she said, that was one of the greatest sermons I ever heard you preach. I mean, we just know this is true, right? Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I foresaw Yahweh always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Verse 26, therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. Well, the resurrection of Christ was both prophetic and fact. There's not always the same, because until Christ was crucified and risen, it was just prophetic, but now it's taken place. Now it is a fact. Peter, quoting Psalm 16, a messianic psalm. He's going to dart between three different psalms in this one section of his sermon. He's already laid out Joel to them. And now he is, as I said, speaking from the books of wisdom in the Old Testament. A barrage of scripture to support his points. It's not his opinion. He's giving them the word. He's applying to Christ, what David, some of what David saw concerning himself, making it a dual fulfillment. Christ being the greater fulfillment. For Christians, the Old Testament po- uh, pointed forward to Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, the Old Testament meaningless without him. What could you get from the Old Testament without Jesus Christ? He brings life to it all because it's all about him. And that's why when he says, I am the way, the truth and the life, that goes back to Genesis 1, where God says, when the Bible says, God speaking through Moses, in the beginning, God, or in the Hebrew, God in the beginning created the heavens and earth and everything forward. Psalm 68, verse 2, our God is the God of salvation. And Yahweh, the Lord, and to Yahweh, the Lord, belong, escapes from death. Well, I'm having a hard time reading some of these things. I want to hurry up and get to what I want to say and not what I I want to read. It is a dilemma. But back to that verse again. Our God is the God of salvation. And to Yahweh, the Lord, belong, escapes from death. Only God could be the Savior. And so when you come to the New Testament and Jesus is referred to the Savior, that makes him equal with God by design. Verse 27, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Hades, or Sheol, was the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the place of death. And in the New Testament, in the minds of those two. He's quoting verse 10 of Psalm 16. And David indicates that he will be in Hades. He will be in the underworld, in Sheol, the righteous side of it. But he will not be left there. Psalm 68, verse 18, another psalm of David. You have ascended on high, yet you led captivity captive. What that psalm is saying is that God is the one that will take those who are in righteous Sheol, who died before Christ, and he will bring them into heaven. Paul uses this in Ephesians 4. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. Isaiah 61, verse 1, speaking of Jesus. 
that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison door of the prison to those who are bound. And so again, before the cross of Christ, when someone died, a righteous person such as Abraham, they went to Sheol, which was divided into two compartments, the wicked side where they were doomed and the righteous side where they had no savior. Because heaven was not open to sinners until Jesus descended and then ascended with them. And that's why we read, and Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You won't be taking a dirt nap, as that theology that teaches we're in a sleep state. It's just a doctrine that hopefully you've never heard of. It's out there, though. I think the Jehovah Witnesses are the big ones that, that push that one, that uh, we, when we die, we're not conscious. Uh, but the Bible <clears throat> says otherwise. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Well, David saw beyond himself, but yet he's speaking also of himself. The paradox that the prophets bring to, uh, brought to their day was Messiah would die, but his throne would last forever. When Christ came, many of the Jews lost sight of that. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Total control, total fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and all the Messianic Psalms and the writings of the prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah that mention Messiah will reign on earth nonetheless. We have to learn to discover and understand dual meanings and dual applications and dual fulfillments in the Scripture, because there's quite a few of them. Now, uh, the idea of the resurrection from death is where Peter finds ultimate and significance in these words of David, that there is a resurrection. And so he's telling his Jewish audience, you know there's a resurrection because our Bible preaches the resurrection when David said you will not leave the Holy One, uh, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. He's holding them to the Scripture, the Scripture they claim to believe. David did not mean that David would not die, but that his death would not be permanent. His original reference has in it a reference to himself. You will not leave your Holy One himself being separated when Samuel anointed him. There is a dual application there, but its greater fulfillment is in Christ, and, and David would have known that. Uh, the, many of his psalms do just that. Many of the prophets, when they speak of their prophecies, they bounce back and forth through different ages of their prophecy, different stages of its fulfillment. And we see the New Testament writers explaining these things to us as Peter is doing here. Peter is saying, David is talking about this Jesus. Even though there was a present meaning, its fuller meaning is now. And his audience had every chance to refute Peter, to scoff at Peter at this point, And they don't because they can't deny it. And this holy one of God. Even the demons recognize Jesus to be the Holy One. Isaiah 49, speaking of Messiah, Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Well, 
you're not going to say the Holy One of the church because the church didn't exist. It was a non-idea. They could not even imagine it. To this day, there are amongst the Hasidic Jews this passion to reach other Jews and zero passion to reach Gentiles. That is unbiblical. But they're listening to their rabbis, their Talmud, their Mishnah, and their other writings. And they've departed from the... They bring up the law and they bring up Moses and the characters in the Bible when convenient for their points. But they're not adhering to their own scripture. I mean, for instance, Messiah cannot come right now. There are no longer the records of the genealogical records to prove that he's from the line of David. So that little section, uh, that beginning of Matthew's gospel in that third chapter of Luke, they're critical. They're saying, here's his royal line from Matthew, from Joseph, uh, in, in Matthew, from Joseph to Solomon to David. And then in, Mar- in, in Luke, we have the bloodline going from Mary all the way back to Nathan and David. This covers it all in the mind of the Jew. So they've missed that window. But many of them don't want to hear this, especially in the Hasidic world, which is a whole other thing. Well, I don't have time to stay on that, uh, but I will go back to this. Verse 28, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. David was deeply sensitive to God. When he wrote these things, he meant them. He believed them, regardless of his struggles, as we discussed the life of David. Many of these beautiful psalms came when he was being hounded by Saul, and yet he trusted God. So, you have made known to me the ways of life. Well, remember when Jesus preached? They didn't like his sermon, many of them. And they said, this is a hard saying. This is not a seeker-friendly sermon, and we're going to leave. And they left. And Jesus did not say, oh, no, wait, come back. Give me another chance. Why did you leave? He he looked at his his 12 apostles, and he said, you're going to leave too? And it was Peter, John chapter 6, verse 68. But, but Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See that connection? You have made known to me the ways of life from the Psalms. And Peter saying, you have the words of eternal life. I don't think at that point Peter made that connection. He may have. I'll ask him when I, when I get there. But uh, right now, We're going to go that way. He says in verse 28, you will make me full of joy in your presence. Well, prophecy makes us merry. That's why a lot of people, listen, if I just, if we were finishing up this morning, the book of Revelation, is a good chance somebody after the service would say, where are we going next, Pastor? Revelation? You get it? There's this hunger for end time prophecy. There's this hunger in, in Christians because prophecy The whole concept of it in the Bible makes the heart merry. It is the shadow of God's sovereignty. When we come across prophecy, especially the ones that we know are fulfilled, we we get stronger in our faith. God has got this under his control. Isaiah 46, verse 9. You've got to love these Hebrew prophets. I mean, they're just amazing Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do my pleasure. How can you not love the God that says, I am in control? 
And I don't ask permission. I, I mean, this is why prophecy is a shadow of sovereignty. And this is why when David writes, you have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of joy in your presence. David had prophecy in his day. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, <clears throat> he's saying men and brethren, again, likely on the Temple Mount, probably near or in the court of the men. He keeps addressing his audience in the masculine. That would account for that. The Pentecost pil pilgrims. Uh, at the end, Peter uh, Luke will tell us that 3,000 souls were saved. That's not masculine. At some point, perhaps the, the ladies did uh, join the crowd, which would then uh, put it outside of the court of the men, maybe in one of the, the colonnades. Uh, so many places there they, that this could be happening that would accommodate such a lar large turnout. Uh, if you go to the Temple Mount today, which I do not believe, or maybe I'll put it this way, I'm not so sure is the original site. I, I lean toward the, temp the current Temple Mount being the Antonia Fortress, and yet to the south, about 600 feet, is where the Temple Mount uh, really was. Uh, it really doesn't matter. God is going to do what he's, everything he said he's going to do. Um, and I forgot why I was bringing this up, except to say that uh, this would accommodate the crowds and not the uh, local streets amongst the Jews. He says here in verse 29, <clears throat> let me speak freely to you. Uh, Jesus, Peter was a nobody, according to the religious elite, and many of the Jerusalem Jews saw, looked down at him. Pulpits devour able men. Men who step into the pulpit and they can be articulate and they could be, that have the silver tongue and they can be very knowledgeable. It is only the, the anointed man that prevails in the pulpit. God can take a man who is clumsy in, with the language and turn him into a fireball. Uh, this is true of Paul. They mocked his speech. And yet, look, we don't study those who... We don't even know their names. We are well-versed in the life of the Apostle Paul. So when Peter says, let me speak freely to you, it is because of the promise, you will be witnesses to me uh, with power, and we're looking at that. Of the patriarch David, verse 29, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. <clears throat> if I can say it this way, David at this point was unrisen and still is. Uh, just in contrast, in Jerusalem, there was the body of David. And he's still there, is what Peter is saying, the body. Christ, by contrast, He's crucified. His body's not here. You can go down to uh, the tomb to check and see if he's there. You can go to the Bureau of Records at the temple and find out his lineage and find out he has rights to the throne. You can also discover that all these things we know about Jesus Christ can apply to no one else. As I mentioned, even this day, the Messiah, there's no way to validate that he's from the tribe of, of Judah. 
let alone on so many other things. So since David's body remains in the grave, his words in Psalm 16 cannot refer primarily or exclusive to him when he speaks about um, being incorruptible. The body did not die and subject to its decay. Paul will later use the same approach, pointing to David in Acts chapter 13, that David is dead, he is here, he is not risen, but Christ is. Verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. And David was a prophet. The oath is what was given uh, through Nathan the prophet to David. <laughs> oh, now look at that side of the sanctuary. That's supposed to help with the cough. It's just um, water, but it's really wet. Uh, we Christians believe that men wrote down what God inspired them to capture from their day about things present, even things past, and things future. Therefore, because we believe that, we must be dominated in our outlook by truth. Truth is to characterize and dominate the Christian. Truth about Jesus Christ. You have to put this warning on it, though. If all you have is truth, you're going to be barbaric. Truth alone can be brutal. You must mix with truth love, gentleness, and kindness. Without those things, you become legalistic and fruitless and an irritant and a candidate for pepper spray. <laughs> Not that we want... We want the truth, is, is what it comes down to about God. We do not want traditions that are meaningless and baseless. We want what God has to say. Verse, Continuing in verse 31, and we'll speed up now because we've really hit the major points. The fruit of his body according to the flesh. Uh, he's going with Psalm 132 at this point. I've already covered the genealogy. He's talking about the human body, not the carnal nature. Um, <clears throat> Verse 31, there's really nothing I haven't already commented on here in verse 30. Uh, verse 31, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So again, Peter preaching to those who knew these verses that he's using. And if his, if his application was wrong, if when Peter is saying, I'm quoting these verses from the Psalms, I'm quoting these verses from Joel, I'm applying them to this moment with the phenomenon of, of the Holy Spirit coming and my application to Jesus Christ, if he was wrong, now would be their chance to object. Now would be their chance to say, wait a minute, Christ could not have been the Messiah because. But we never hear a protest. There's nothing they can say. That's why they're going to repent. They're going to respond to the truth. You have to believe that when you preach. You just stick with the truth according to the scripture. And you leave the rest with the, with the Lord. Not everybody that day in Jerusalem was saved, but a large amount. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And again, they could have just taken a short walk to the tomb to find that. Verse 32 
This Jesus God has raised, of which we are all witnesses. Uh, David's words of not remaining in Hades made no sense until you factor in the resurrection. David is talking about, I'm not going to remain in the underworld. God will lift me to his, his presence and glory. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David could see that. Uh, he says, of which we are witnesses. An amazing sermon. Peter being filled with the Spirit. No guarantee of personal perfection. He will make mistakes still. We'll read about those later. Verse 33. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. He's talking about the coming of the Spirit, the speaking into the miraculous events, which must have been more powerful than the words can convey to us. Titus, Paul writes to Titus, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What a magnificent, these verses, I don't know if you Christians, I do believe you do, but if you don't, you're cheating yourself. You need to make sure you go through your New Testament and and let these things get down deep in us. Verse 34, For David did not descend into the heavens, but he says himself, Yahweh said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Now he's referring to Psalm 68, and um, he is eliminating himself from being the fulfillment of the prophecy. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Uh, he's speaking of someone greater than himself. Someone who was simultaneously distinct from Yahweh and yet David's ruler. And that would be Messiah. Verse 35. We're, hey, look, two more verses. We're all, hang on. <laughs> Till I make your enemies your footstool. That's the Messianic kingdom. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. We have a dual meaning of the present tense in the kingdom. We work for the, uh, you know, we do it in the, in the kingdom and then the kingdom to come. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Right? Blunt, pretty uh, blunt enough. Therefore let it be known to Israel. This Jesus whom you crucified. Isaiah 53, 3. He, he is despised and rejected by men. These are the men that brought about his, his death. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. No, they killed him. Today, the rabbis try to say, well, he's talking about this is a metaphor for Israel, and it just doesn't fit because they don't want it to apply to Messiah, the person. Uh, they only came up with that after uh, Christ. This is uh, no one else in history comes close. They needed help to understand that their Messiah would be the sovereign sufferer. 
so does the world. The world needs us to make them understand. They need a savior. And what we learn about witnessing is that we don't know who God has been working on until he opens the door for us to join that work. He works internally and then he brings us externally. Our job is to be ready to be used. And it is no surprise that Christians who are not ready aren't used. Uh, all of us should be saying, Lord, uh, if you lead me to somebody to share the gospel with. Well, I'm out of time, not words. And um, one last thing. If you are afraid of losing lost friends because you share the gospel with them, then be ready to lose them for all eternity, too. Uh, the gospel is still powerful. Let's pray. Our Father, um, may these lessons from your words sink down into our hearts as believers, learning to understand that we must be on offense that we must go against the lies of Satan, yet not without you. If you've been listening and you've never opened your heart to Christ, then you should know that you are dead in your sins. You're, the curse is upon you. Regardless of how good you may think you are, you're never going to be good enough to enter into heaven without being forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ through his sacrifice on the cross. You must confess your sins. You're born in sin. There is no other way. No one else died for sinners. No one else is good enough to die for sinners that they could appear in heaven before God the Father. You must come through the Christ. If you would make this confession right now, God will receive you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I have broken your commandments. I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else that I can go to. There is no other Savior. There is no other God. And I come to you and I ask you to forgive me and to receive me this day. So that you could be to me not only the one that saves my soul from judgment to come but that you would also be the ruler over my life right now. And that you would give me your Holy Spirit, that I would have a heart for the lost, that I would have a heart to grow in Christ. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer, may they not be ashamed of it. May they follow through. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.